The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. We are going to jump back into the book of Psalms today. Over the last Five or six years, we have revisited the Psalms at different times, and we will continue to do that for years to come. I've said this before, uh, my hope is to preach through the entire Psalter uh, before I am granted passage to our eternal country. So it's just kind of a goal I've set, and uh, asking the Lord to to help that happen. Uh, We have named this series, when we're in the Psalms, Ancient Songs, Timeless Truths, Because the Psalms are very old, uh, some close to 4,000 years old, and the newest ones around 3,000 years old, and yet they are full of truth about life and struggle and joy and worship that is still as relevant and helpful today as it was then. Uh, Part of the importance and the beauty of reading, singing, studying, and praying the Psalms, is we know when we do that, we are joining in with the people of God who have been doing those things ever since way back during the time of the Old Covenant. And so these are ancient paths that we're walking, and it's good to return to those. Uh, We ended last time we were in the Psalms at Psalm 22, and so today we find ourselves in Psalm 23. Now this is arguably the most famous psalm, I would say almost certainly it is, it's perhaps the most famous chapter in all of the scripture. There's likely not been any other piece of literature in history that has been cross-stitched more often than this psalm. Uh, And I think that perhaps the most prolific and, and, and profound evidence for how well-known this psalm is, is if you pay close attention to the tone and the cadence of a particular quotation of one line in it, okay? Here it is. As I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. This is a famous psalm. Now, I would also like to stop and pray right now that for all of us born in the 80s or the 90s, that the Lord would remove Coolio's voice from our brains as we read this psalm today, okay? We're going to need the Holy Spirit's help for that, because I know when I read that particular phrase, I'm back on the school bus nodding my head to Gangster's Paradise, okay? So that's a problem when people take stuff like this and use it in art. It it can uh, co-opt it in a way. So Lord, please help us. I don't want to be thinking about Gangster's Paradise as I study the psalm today. Thank you. Amen. But, so all joking aside, there's, I think, something we should say before we jump into this, because, hear me, sometimes familiarity breeds indifference or even contempt, and that's something we have to really watch out for. My prayer today is that for those of us who are very familiar with this psalm or maybe even have memorized it, that we will not miss the opportunity to have it shape our hearts and minds as God's word always should. And, and for those today that are here, maybe you're less familiar with it, I, I pray genuinely that you will see today why it is so famous and why it's been a source of great comfort and joy for God's people for thousands of years. 
And so as we approach this psalm today, I'll remind you, we did read it last week, and that was under the pretense that it describes a truly fulfilled life. And I would like us to hold that idea as we read it today. I think it's still relevant and uh, important. I hope this last week you've been thinking about it in that way. Um, I would also ask you to have uh, these three questions in your mind as we read this first, but then also as we're studying through it. Uh, I'm asking you, even as we go verse by verse, run what's being said in this psalm through the grid of these three questions, okay? The first is, do I need this? Do I need this? The second is, do I want this? Do I want this? The third being, do I have this? Do I have this? So those three questions I think will be a helpful grid upon which to uh, perceive what it is the Lord has for us in going through this psalm today. So let's read Psalm 23 together. If you don't have a Bible with you, the verses will be on the screen. If you don't own a Bible, please give us the chance to give you one before you leave. We really would be honored to be able to do that. Okay, here we go. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Praise God for his word. Let's go back to the top. You know the drill. We're going to work through this verse by verse. And so verse 1 starts with, The Lord is my shepherd. And friends, this is an incredibly loaded sentence. The Lord is my shepherd. It's, some have said, I, I would not disagree with this, it's a, it's a summary of the contents of the psalm. Really, the Lord is my shepherd is the big idea. The rest, in, in some ways, is breaking down the details of what that looks like and what that means. The Lord is my shepherd. And so, first of all, we see here, uh, when you see the Lord, uh, all capitalized, that's Yahweh, the covenant name of God. And so this is personal. This is not Elohim. This is not, just, this is not just a God is a shepherd. This is the Lord is my shepherd. And so there's some real important, beautiful, relational language being used here that, that you could miss if you didn't get in and just take a look at that and pay attention to it. So we're talking about the covenant name of God, the relational name of God between him and his people. And David doesn't even say that that Yahweh is a shepherd. He says he's my shepherd. Now remember the three questions I asked you to be thinking through. This is numero uno on where it's important to think about that, okay? The second thing I want you to see is that without humble acknowledgement of how sheep-like we are, we will never rejoice in this truth like we should. The, 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 the great news, the almost incomparably good news that the Lord can be your shepherd, it will, it will almost fall on deaf ears without a proper, humble acknowledgement of your need for a shepherd. 
Sheep do need a shepherd. They are defenseless, basically, against predators. They are prone to wander and get lost. They often fall into holes and they get entangled in thorns while looking for food. They are often dirty and they need help to keep their wool clean. They are easily spooked and they will run wildly in fear. The list goes on and on of what sheep are like and why you see this shepherd-sheep analogy run literally from Genesis to Revelation. This is not an isolated thing, okay, for sure. Uh, And David understood these things intimately, right? Because he spent the younger years of his life as a shepherd. And so it's fitting that the Holy Spirit would inspire David to write this psalm and to use this analogy. And here's something else to consider. Uh, It's also interesting that God sent Moses out in the wilderness to tend flocks for many years before sending him to lead his people out of captivity in Egypt. You see this correlation between God using shepherding of sheep, shepherding of flocks, to train those that he was going to have lead his people. It's it's far deeper than I have time to trace for us this morning. I'll just kind of toss that softball out to you, and you can maybe dig into it more this week. The shepherd and the sheep analogy, it, it runs through the entire scriptures for good reason. But the comfort and confidence that it is meant to provide will be lost on the prideful, who are unwilling or unable to see that they need a shepherd. And that's why those three questions right off the bat here are real important. Do I need this? When I hear that the Lord is my shepherd, do I think I need that? And then equally important is, do I want that? Maybe I can acknowledge that I need it, but do I want it? How many times did Jesus say, do you want to be healed? It's an important question. There's, there's an element of desire in there. And what, what I, do, do I want God to relate to me as a shepherd? Do I want to take my proper position as his sheep? And then thirdly, do I have this? Do I have this now? The great news is, in case I forget to say this later, if you know you need God to be your shepherd, if you want God to be your shepherd, all the hurdles are out of the way. It's a matter of reaching out by faith to receive this incredibly good news and this relational connection to God. He wants to care for you like a good shepherd cares for sheep. And we're going to Look at that some more as well so that we understand what that means. Jesus spoke of this idea really powerfully in John 10. I'm going to read you a decent chunk of scripture here, but it's so incredibly relevant to the discussion that I I didn't want to skip any of it. So we're in John 10, and this is Jesus' teaching. He says, truly, truly, remember anytime the master says truly twice, you you be quiet and listen, because he's he's making a point. Not just truly, but truly, truly. I say to you, the one who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But the one who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep listen to his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. There's a couple of interesting things already. The the picture is, he's talking about a doorkeeper and all of that, oftentimes... Sheep would be led into a stone-walled area, and there would be one gap. So the shepherd leads all the sheep through the gap. The sheep are then made to to lay down and rest for the night. And and where do you think the shepherd slept? In the gap. 
The shepherd would sleep at the hole in the wall. That's a good shepherd. And what he's saying is, the only way you're getting to these sheep, because if you're a problem, if you want to hurt these sheep, if you've got bad intentions for these sheep, don't come to the gate, because I'm there. And I got a rod and I got a staff, and I know what to do with them. The only way you're getting in is climbing up over the wall, because you, you come tangled with this shepherd, it's not going good for you. He's going to protect his sheep whom he loves. That's a good shepherd. Secondly, it said right there at the end of verse 3, he leads them out. The more you understand and listen to people that actually shepherd sheep, the deeper and more beautiful these analogies get. You've probably seen cowboys run cattle before. They'll get behind them on horses, and you can herd cattle by driving them from the back. Sheep, for the most part, are different. The shepherd gets out in front of the sheep, and the sheep follow him. It's a totally different orientation. Totally fitting that the Lord Jesus is the firstborn among many brethren. All that he did was him going first, and now we as the sheep can follow. He doesn't drive us from behind with a whip. He calls us to him from in front. I don't know if you just got how helpful that is or how beautiful that is, but you should think about it more if you didn't, because it'll help you. When he puts all his own sheep outside, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. However, a stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus told them this figure of speech, but they did not understand what the things which he was saying to them meant. So Jesus said to them again, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All those who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came so that they would have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. Mark it down. There is zero question that as Jesus said these words, Psalm 23 was at least in view. There is a connection here. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters the flock. He flees because he's a hired hand and does not care about the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Think about that. Think about if you were hired as a shepherd. Are you getting in between a wolf or a pack of wolves to save a sheep? This is the relation that Jesus has to us. And his answer is yes, without question. Talking last week, we spent a lot of time looking at typologies of Christ throughout the Old Testament. There's, there's something to part of David's story being that a lion and a bear showed up to get the sheep. Did they get the sheep? Nope. Because David was a good shepherd. In the image, the foreshadowing of Christ. He flees because he's a hired hand. And does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. And I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life 
for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. They will become one flock with one shepherd. Who do you think that is? He's talking about Israel. That's the flock he's talking about, but he's got other sheep they don't know about, but they're going to be a part of this flock too, and they're going to be one flock eventually. It's the Gentiles. Jesus is tilting the hand of the big grand plan of redemption, how all of the families of the earth are going to be blessed through the promise that was given to Abraham. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's good. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it back. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it back. This commandment I received from my Father. Praise God. So Jesus unpacks a little bit of the the dynamics of what it means for the Lord to be our shepherd. And, And that's last week we talked about Psalm 22, 23, and 24 being linked together. Uh, and all being messianic. Psalm 22 is is widely known and understood to be messianic. It's got some of the clearest, forward-looking, prophetic uh, utterances around the crucifixion, and it's it's very clear. Sometimes I think Psalm 23 and 24 can can be missed. Psalm 23 being kind of a, a picture of what it looks like in the here and now to be under the leadership of a good shepherd, under King Jesus the Messiah. And then Psalm 24 kind of being future-looking to uh, the final victory as the glorious king enters the gates with a great host, right? We'll get there next week. Don't let me start preaching 24 yet. All right. Uh, The next line is, uh, I shall not want. Here's, this is so good. The very presence, the very presence of the shepherd, it would comfort the sheep. Friends, the sheep did not know the plan. Do you understand that? Sheep don't know the plan at the beginning of the day. There's not a huddle, there's not a team meeting at the beginning of the day where the shepherd sits all the little sheep down on their little sheep story time carpet and says, okay guys, we're going to go up over these two hills, we're going to bank a left, run down through this draw, there we're going to find some water, then we're going to move up this other hillside and there's a really nice set of grass up there that you guys will really enjoy. Everyone okay with that? No. The sheep, here's what the sheep know. That shepherd takes care of me, and he's going that way. The end. That's what they know. So they're not sitting there going, man, what's going to happen today? Are we going to eat? Are we going to get water? Are are we going to get eaten? They're, They're not even thinking about it, because their experience is, every time that shepherd's around, nothing's been able to attack me. I always eat, and I always have water. Two thumbs up, man. That's all they know. They're not in a bunch of want. Are you understanding how if we could get ourselves to be more like sheep in some ways, it might help us a little bit? They're not thinking about where they'd graze, but, but, but if the shepherd was with them, they knew they could just follow him and they would be okay. That is the bottom line. Verse 2. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. This is interesting. I think a lot of times people see that he makes me lie down in green pastures and, and they're thinking, okay, so that's saying that they, they focus on the green pastures part and think, okay, so this is food and water, right? And, and I would say this whole first couple verses uh, is talking about the fact that, that the Lord, 
God is not hyper-spiritual. Is it okay to say that? He understands we have physical needs. He cares about those. And he's committed to take care of us and, and the physical needs that we have. But the emphasis here is not on green pastures, and that meaning he'll always make sure you've got good food to eat. That's not really what it's... It, it, he makes you lie down in green pastures. It's, it's this idea that there's no frantic need for the sheep. If they have a good shepherd that they trust... Okay, there's no frantic need to keep eating all the green grass around you for fear that you might starve tomorrow. The shepherd always makes sure we eat. So if the shepherd says it's time to lay down, even though there's all this food around me, and maybe every natural instinct in me says, man, get it while I can get it, right? The, sh the shepherd's never had me in a situation where day by day he didn't take care of my needs. So that means I can lay down even with this banquet of lovely grasses around me, I can rest. I don't need to keep, I don't have to be driven by fear to keep over-consuming to try to make up for this feared lack that may come. Is anybody feeling like, man, if I could get a hold of that, I might feel a little more freedom and joy in my life? Yeah, thank you. Somebody got it. Amen. That would help me, buddy. Because can we say that we share that instinct with sheep? to be frantically driven from behind by fear, to, to feel like we have to run and, and, and feel scattered, and like we got to grab as much as we can. And, and how incredible is it to know that day by day, look, look man, the shepherd has proven he can do what he's promised to do. We've got, we, we, we know he can, so let's live like that. Let's, let's let our, our thoughts and our, our emotions be informed by that truth. Amen. You can lay down and rest because the shepherd will make sure you have what you need. Man, that's good news. I can, I can, see, I can see a few deep breaths out there and, and like some tension leaving some shoulders. That helps, man. That's, that's what that's talking about. It says... Not just that he'll make you lay down in green pastures, but he leads me beside quiet waters. So not just any water, quiet waters. Water that is safe to drink, and it won't sweep you into danger because of your thirst. So it's some of the same idea. If the shepherd make, makes it known that I, I, it's safe for me to drink from this, here, it's different than me just being driven by the instinct of thirst to whatever water I see. Because there's, there's bad water. There's water that's unsafe to drink. There's water that'll it'll mess you up. I, and, and, and in the moment, man, especially if you're a sheep and you don't, you know, you don't know about Giardia and other waterborne illnesses and whatever messes with sheep, I, I, don't, I, I haven't gotten deep enough into the microbiology of sheep yet to know exactly what diseases we have to watch out for. Uh, if I start sheep herding at some point, if the Lord says, all right, hey, I, I want you to start uh, Tending a flock of sheep to learn how to better care for my people. That's actually not a bad idea. We'll see what happens. Um, but, uh, <laughs> you know, there, the water could be poison. Or, or you just, you're, 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 so, you feel, you're so thirsty, you're being driven by the instinct of thirst, not driven by what the shepherd is saying, not being driven by when the shepherd says, hey, it's time to drink, you're okay. I know you might feel like you're dying of thirst, but we, we got to get to water that's, it's, it's, the contents of it are safe, but also it's a place where you can get down next to it. And if you, if you trip or stumble, it's not this rushing thing that, that because of your thirst, you go in and plunge your head into it, trip, fall, 
whoosh, down the river you're going, getting banged into every rock and, and hurt, bloodied up and bruised, right? Are you, guys, are you guys able to take that analogy and transfer it over to your own life and understand what that means? I have felt very thirsty before and run and dove into water that I was like, hey, here's what I know about it. It's water, and I feel thirsty. And then I got in it, and I got beat up because I wasn't... I didn't look to the shepherd to say, son, it's time and it's safe. This is a, pl- this is a good place to drink right here. Just because it's water don't mean it's right. All right, I'll let you keep working on that. We got to keep going here. These thus far are physical needs. Our great shepherd cares for us physically, but not just physically. And so we see a pivot here as we move into verse 3. It says, he restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Very interesting thought connections. He restores my soul and he guides me in paths of righteousness. First of all, again, without humility, this won't mean much to you. Without a sense and an understanding that I need my soul restored, this is not going to mean much to you if you feel self-sufficient, if you feel like you can, you can shepherd yourself, both physically and spiritually, this idea that the shepherd has the desire and the power to restore your soul may not hit you like it should. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon was famous for saying that you will not have a genuine experience of conversion. You will not truly come to salvation until you come to a genuine realization of your spiritual bankruptcy. And that is why we can't run around just saying Jesus loves you and thinking we have preached the entirety of the good news. We can't do that. Because the good news of the gospel makes very little sense without the bad news. The bad news is our soul needs restored. The bad news is in and of ourselves, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are in trouble without a shepherd. We are lost sheep without a shepherd. And it's okay. Look, I get how you could be a lost sheep toddling around in the fields, maybe thinking that you're doing okay. I, I understand, and, and I understand how our world can create a false sense of, of that and, and intensify it. I understand all that. But we need to understand this, this is a kind of a baseline of this psalm being able to do in us what it's supposed to do. I need a shepherd. There, if, if you're going to be afraid of anything, if you come to the realization, I, I don't actually have a shepherd, you should, you should be afraid. And you should look for one, and there's only one you really want to go to. It's the great shepherd, the shepherd of shepherds, the chief shepherd. It's him alone that can make statements like this. I will always lead you to lie down in green pastures. I will always lead you by still waters. I will take care of you. I can restore your soul. And then, not only will I restore your soul, but then I will help you begin to realize what it, what it looks like to live the life you were always made to live, which is the paths of righteousness. The paths of righteousness is, is in this, and we even see the gospel in this, right? It's not, it doesn't say, he'll lead you on the paths of righteousness and then restore your soul, does it? Uh-oh! 
There's an order for a reason. He will restore your soul and then lead you on paths of righteousness. Because it's him restoring your soul that's step one and you seeing, this is a good shepherd. This is an amazing shepherd. This is someone I can trust. This guy loves me. This guy would get in between me and trouble. He'll put his body on the line to save my life. This guy knows what he's talking about. When he says, eat that, every time I eat it, it helps me. When he says, drink right there, it goes good every time. And it seems like every time I don't listen to him, it goes bad. Huh. But the beginning is the heart change that happens at salvation, where we come to believe this shepherd loves me, I can trust him. And we reach out by faith and ask him, please be my shepherd. I, I think you could reach out in, 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 in a cry for salvation. I think someone could say, Lord, please save me from my sin. I think someone could also, if, if this was the language they had, I think they could say, Lord, please be my shepherd. And if what they meant by that was, I am a sinner, I am a fool, I can't do this on my own, I need you to lead and guide me, I need your help, I absolutely believe it counts. Powerful, powerful language and imagery that runs far deeper than we have time to explore. And then, of course, the end, which will only bring joy to the heart of the ones who have had their soul restored, who have walked the paths of righteousness and seen how good and glorious and worthy this shepherd is of this. He does this all for his name's sake. And friends, remember, the self-glorification of God is not something that is tyrannical. It's not driven by ego. That's, that's not the deal. The self-glorification, the reason why God does all things for his namesake, the reason why God does things all for his glory is, first of all, he is that glorious. There is, there is no one else that comes even close to deserving worship, adoration, allegiance like God. And so if for no other reason, if there was no other reason, than just he glorified himself because he alone is worthy of the glory. He would, that, that's not egotistical when you're that guy. You see what I'm saying? When you are him, it, it, there, there, you can't be egotistical because no one's ever going to fully even be able to grasp how amazingly wonderful you are. All, 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 of, our, all of our attempts to bring glory to God, all, all of our singing, all of our words, all of our, our prayers, it's, it's good and it's right, and we should strive with all of our life to bring glory to God, but it will all always fall short of what he truly deserves. Okay, so if, if, that, if that was it, that's, that, that, that would be fine, but it's not it. it. It is more complicated than that. And there are some people that will tell you, that's it. Don't ask any more questions about it. And, and I, I get what they're doing. They want the glory of God to be, to be protected. They want the glory of God to be lifted high as it should be. God should be glorified in our hearts and minds in the earth. That's right. In the heavens, in all of the... Yes, amen, I'm, I'm 100% with that. But he has also revealed in his word that it is not just about him glorifying himself for the sake of him being glorified. It is, there's also this reality at play. Because he made us and he loves us and we were made for him, the most loving thing he could ever do for us is to glorify himself. 
Because everything he does to remove all of the foolish distractions and idols that we will cling to in hope, all the little false shepherds that we will, we will hope can do what only this shepherd can do, every, in all the ways God has glorified himself and is glorifying himself, he is loving us. Because he is giving us a picture of where we should be pointing our worship and allegiance and what is going to lead to the greatest amount of joy for us. It's really the only place true joy is going to be found. It's the only place fulfillment is going to be found. Because we were made for him. I, I use this in evangelism all the time. If I, just, if I leave here today and I'm like, you know what, it's so beautiful. Here's what I want to do. I, I think today would be a great day to take my SUV and go drive it into the river. Boating sounds fun. How's that going to go? It's going to go really bad. You seemed unsure, friends. Sometimes I try to throw you these softballs so you can participate confidently. If I drive my SUV into the river, how will it go? Very bad. Why? It's not a boat, okay? It wasn't made for the river. It was made for the road. And perhaps small off-road excursions, but not the river. at all, okay? Every single person trying to live with another shepherd is an SUV in the river. <clears throat> Praise God. Verse 4. Go away, Coolio. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. You can't shepherd sheep. Here's, here's why the shepherd analogy is so precious. You can't shepherd sheep from afar. You got to be with them. Right there with them. You can't protect them if you're far away. You can't lead them. You can't lead these silly sheep that'll get themselves in all kinds of trouble without you from a distance. This isn't a hands-off type occupation. This is a hands-on deal. You got to be close. Guys, that God and and do you do you, do you understand how magnificent it is that God is absolutely fine with this continual comparison of him to being our shepherd, particularly with how shepherds were viewed in, in biblical times. There's, there's, there's writings from several rabbis in the time that tell us shepherds were despised. They were seen as kind of blue collar. Their work was yucky, dealing with animals. And God just doesn't care. Not worried about it one bit. God is not worried about smelling like sheep. He's not worried about being close to us and all that that means. All the trouble we bring him. What a good God. The reason we have no fear is because he is with us. Now, when it talks about this walking through the valley of the shadow of death, what does that mean? This, this particular verse, verse 4, has meant that this is oftentimes read at funerals. It's read in the run-up to people uh, passing away, and that's not wrong at all. Uh, it, it, this you know, these words have been the last words on many people's lips on this side of eternity. 
And that's beautiful that this scripture has brought comfort to so many for thousands of years as they've thought about the fact that God is their shepherd here, but will also be their shepherd there. But I think there is a broader application that we should consider because this is not, it doesn't say I walk through the valley of death. It says of the shadow of death. And if you notice, he walks through the valley of the shadow of death and has no fear. There's no actual implication here that that death is the end of the walk through the valley. Now again, that doesn't take away from the application that if death is at the end of the walk through the valley, that this has no meaning. Of Of course it's meaningful in that way. I just want to make sure we don't miss the fact that really this could be talking about a season of of the, it, it being the shadow of death. There are some that have said, you know, don't, don't super hold me to this because this is kind of hard to, to get any clarification on, but it, it's helpful for the idea. There, there's some that have said, oftentimes sheep be, being so mm, not that smart, um, they'll get into a valley and, and if, if the sun is setting and there's a, there's a shadow, they, they will start to freak out thinking that it's night and they're not in a safe location. And so sometimes it's, it's, sometimes it's the shadow of death. It's the threat of death, right? And, and this, that can be a season-long thing. Or I really think this is, there's an echo here. Peter is kind of echoing this when he talks about, that, look, man, you're going to suffer for a little while, but then comes glory. I really think to some degree this entire life is the valley of the shadow of death. Is the shadow of death not ultimately always there? For humans, we, right? It, it is. It's, it could happen today, not to bum anyone out or freak them out, and that's kind of the point. If this psalm is hitting like it should, being in the shadow of death, I'm, I'm, I'm a weirdo while everyone else is like, oh, the shadow of death. I can kind of skip and, and, and jump. I can be happy. Because the worst thing that happens is like, oh, real death showed up. I win. Clearly, Part of what we have here is with the Lord as our shepherd, with Christ as our shepherd, friends, the fear of death should not be a ruling and and a reigning part of our our thought life and our emotional life. We should be free of a fear of death. We, and I know that's hard, man. I I know that's a big call, but I, I think Paul nailed it on the head. He said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I'm not saying we get really weird with like this constant unhealthy death wish that makes us nullified in our, in our usefulness this side of eternity. You understand what I mean when I say that? I'm not saying we should be so forward looking to being granted passage to our heavenly country that we disengage from the work that is to be done here. Loving God, loving people, making disciples, fulfilling the Great Commission, obeying Christ in all things and teaching others to do the same. Right? We, we, we can't overdo it, but for many of us, there is, death still has too much sting, and the shadow of death still casts too much fear into our hearts. And I'm just asking you to be, do, so if, if what this is promising is freedom from fear of death, this is another place I'm really asking you to say, do I need that? Freedom from the fear of death. Do I want that? And do I have that? And if the answer is no, this is, this is not meant to be condemning to you, but I, I'm, I'm at least submitting to you, would you bring that to the Lord and ask him to help you? Because 
you are not living in the full freedom that walking with this shepherd can provide. Because you can be in the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil. How? Because he's with you. (laughs) Because the good shepherd's right in front of you. And he already walked these paths. And he already showed you that death is not to be feared when we are in faith. That we will rise and that God has an eternal country for us. Hallelujah. Verse 5. Oh, sorry, no. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. There is not universal agreement on if this is one tool. He's just using two different words. They, they are different words in the original language, but some still think this is talking about one stick. Some would say the rod was something that was kind of kept on the belt. It was shorter. The staff would have been longer. The staff would have been uh, used, you know, maybe, maybe a sheep's down in a hole. It's, it's how we're up in some briars. You know, sheep, sheep will see a berry down in some thorns, and they're like, berry! Boom! Right? And so, they, <laughs> again, everyone say, I'm like a sheep. I'm like a sheep, man. Come on. Ooh, Berry! <laughs> Come on, I got a witness. Yeah. Somehow I didn't see the thorns, I just saw the berry. But if, if the shepherd didn't point at the bush and say, those berries, you can get in there, man, you're fine. I need to learn to stay out. I don't, who cares about that berry? Because if it's good for me, the shepherd will point at it and say, go get it, son. Get in there. Have fun. Right? But the, the, so the staff, uh, the rod and the staff, the rod, the rod, if, if it is two tools, it's probably on the belt, and that would be used, you know, not, not to beat the sheep, but sometimes sheep start to stray, and just you give them kind of a gentle tap in the side, and that lets them know, hey, you're getting off the trail, you're getting too close to the edge, come back in here with the rest of the flock, and, and kind of stay in line here. Uh, the staff could be for fishing them out of holes, fishing them out of bushes, uh, but also both of those tools at any time uh, can be used to defend against predators. And so that's so these tools are multi-purpose. Therefore, therefore, saving and guiding the sheep, but also if something pops up, wanting trouble or wanting to hurt those sheep the shepherd loves, all of a sudden it's time to do business, and those tools can be used to defeat that enemy, that threat. So, in so, so do you understand why David can say, "Your rod and your staff comfort me." I trust that you'll correct me gently when I need it. I trust you'll fish me out of stuff when I get myself in trouble. And I also trust that if something comes and wants to hurt me, you can take care of it. That's, you want to talk about comfort. That, I'm comforted by that. What else is there to worry about? If I screw it up, you can fix it with the rod and staff. Somebody else tries to screw it up, you can fix it with the rod and staff. And I'm just glad you've decided not to use the rod and staff on me like you use it on the enemies. Because honestly, I deserve it half the time. You know what I'm saying? Amen. I'll say that about myself. You can decide if you want to receive that word of exhortation or not. Let's go to verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anointed my head with oil, my cup overflows. So again, um, there's not universal agreement on whether what we have here at verse five is a slight pivot from the shepherding analogy or a just 
plain continuation of it. I think if you were to force me to pick one or the other, it, because he talks about a cup overflowing, that this, there's a, maybe a pivot from the, the shepherd analogy to a hosting, like, like now, now the Lord is the host as opposed to the shepherd. But I really, if you, that's only if you made me pick one, I really think both are still in mind. And so I'm going to try to unpack that for you in relatively short order. Uh, so here we go. You prepare a table with me for the presence of my enemies. All right, so there's, and you've anointed my head with oil. The, the table, so if it's a host, if, if there's a pivot now to the idea of, of this, the Lord as a host, all right, that makes preparing a table for me in the presence of my enemies pretty un- easy to understand, right? It's just now he's setting out a table, offering hospitality. He's the host. I'm invited to the meal. And he can do that in the presence of enemies. And no, again, nobody is scared. Nobody's fearful. Whereas, you know, most of the time a soldier in battle, if, if, if there's enemies wanting to do harm, if, if you're getting any rations, it's, it's while someone else is washing your back, you're shoving it down your gullet and you get back to fight, right? But somehow this host is so mighty and in control of things he can take the time to set a nice table in the presence of the enemies. We can sit down and have a meal, and nobody has to look over their shoulder. Because let one of those enemies get close enough for him to reach them. Just let them. <laughs> let them try. He's got something for them. You heard me? Okay? Amen. I'm so glad that's true. Uh, now, if, if this is a continuation of the shepherding analogy, there, there's, there is this idea that there's certain flat plains and areas that, that could be known as or called a table. And, and so it's taking the sheep to this kind of area, and again, you know, uh, able for them to be able to eat and enjoy and not fear predators. So, you know, again, I think both could be in mind. You know, the shepherd analogy is real strong to begin with. It could be that there's this pivot to the idea of a host, or that these are kind of running in parallel in the mind of, of the psalmist, uh, because they both make sense. Uh, it says, you've anointed my head with oil, my cup overflows. So again, uh, in, in Luke 7, okay, so if this, is a, if this is a pivot to kind of a host and, and guests, in Luke 7, uh, when people are giving Jesus a hard time because a woman anoints him with expensive oil, uh, Jesus makes this specific accusation against the host, like, you know, you, I came in, you get no water for my feet, didn't greet me with a kiss, this, this woman has wet my feet with her tears and hasn't stopped kissing my feet. And you offered me no oil. You did not anoint my head with oil. So that line's in there. And then, and then of course, she had done that out of worship and acknowledgement of who Jesus was. And so the, the idea being, I just wanted to point out the fact that Jesus called that out as something that should have been done by the host. And then here we're seeing that the host does do this. He does anoint the head with oil. And what, what as far as near, you know, ancient Near East customs, it, it was customary if someone came into the house, you know, remember, they didn't drive there in their air-conditioned car, right? They, they journeyed a long time walking on dangerous roads. It's, it's the Middle East, so it's hot, you're sweaty, everything's, you know, your hair's a mess. All, so the oil, anointing them with oil, that was a, that was a hospitality and a kindness for them to be able to refresh themselves, you know, kind of get your hair down a little bit so you're not sitting there at the table looking like the ancient aliens guy, you know what I mean? And, uh, and, and there, there was, a, you know, you're in the sun, 
all day, right? So, you know, you, you might have a little bit of that, that flake and peel going on, right? So the oil just all around, this would be a sweet olive oil probably. They could apply that, and it, it, was, it was a kindness. It was an expected hospitality and gesture if you were going to bring someone into your home. Something that was also different, something we probably don't think about a whole lot. It, this was a very strong custom that we could sometimes miss. In ancient times, if you had someone in your home, and I think part of why we miss this is, is like our world is, I know it doesn't seem this way, but in a lot of ways our world is kind of sanitized and sterilized compared to what it would have been like in ancient times, right? In ancient times, it was just, there was just almost always the possibility that something could pop off. <laughs> like you have someone over to your house for dinner, there's no guarantee Somebody, some band of robbers or whoever, I mean, they're just, you know, you didn't have as much infrastructure and, and, you know, it wasn't, you didn't have 911. So if, if stuff could happen all the time. So there was this expectation if you were going to bring someone into your home, you almost inherent in the invitation was a promise that I, I, when you're in my home, I will protect you. I still think this is part of why it's still abhorrent and terrible, but when, when Lot w- w- went so far to try to protect those angels in his home in Sodom and Gomorrah and, and put his daughters out, it was, it was probably him miscalculating which, which ethic was more important, like he should have just protected everybody, but there, there, was this, there was an incredible expectation of hospitality, and with hospitality came protection. Okay, so I don't know what that means for how we change the way we invite each other over for dinner. You know what I mean? Um, I, <laughs> I guess some of you need to take some self-defense classes or something so that when people come to your house for dinner, they know if someone jumps in, you're the one getting up and uh, going to handle the business, okay? So, I'll leave. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. Don't stop practicing hospitality if you can't fight. It's okay. <laughs> well, it's okay. <laughs> we got locks on the doors now, and, and you can just... You can call 911. It's okay. <laughs> I'm going to ask someone the next time they invite me to their house. Can you fight? I'm not going to explain anything. I'm just going to see what happens. I want to see if they... <laughs> I just want to... I mean, I'm happy to get up too, but I just want to know if you're... What, what's happening? What, are you going to go or who's going? Amen. Uh, and, and, and my cup overflows. The idea of God's provision, friends, it's, it's more than enough. That's, I mean, one of the first verses I ever remember memorizing was Ephesians 3.20, that God is able to do exceedingly and abundantly more than I could ever ask or think. Some versions say exceedingly abundantly. The one, I, I think this is NIV. It's funny, it's funny how as you get older and you read other Bible translations, I'll, I'll have verses all jumbled up between them, but one translation says immeasurably more. God is able to do immeasurably more than you can ask or think. And that, I, I can remember, that was one of the first times I had a moment where I was reading the scriptures, and, and I would have, I had what I would call illumination. Like the Holy Spirit came and just like expanded my mind to like take in what that was saying. Like, hold on, you're telling me God can do, the, the, the amount that God can do more than what I can even think or imagine is, it's so big you can't measure it. And it was, it was like, right? That's, that's kind of the idea behind my, my cup overflows. God's, guys, God's got plenty. And he's, and he's not only willing, he wants to share it with his children, with his sheep. Amen?
So good. Man, that's good. Uh, the other way you can understand the anointing the head with oil, if, it, if it's not the host and, and we're still in the shepherd sheep analogy, or if they're now kind of running parallel in the mind of the psalmist, uh, <clears throat> shepherds have, have said, and this is, this is done even in modern day, but in ancient times, there was a couple reasons why they would put, they would actually, they would put oil on the heads of the sheep. Uh, the first is that there are various biting flies and annoying insects that would bother the sheep, and that, that application of oil could help as a deterrent. Uh, sometimes it would be perfumed with different uh, fragrances that were annoying to the flies, so they would stay away. There's a particular fly that uh, would, would get into the nose of the sheep and then lay eggs, and then those larvae would burrow up into the head of the sheep. And it was, it was a fairly common thing for sheep to thrash around, beating their heads on stuff, trying to get that out, and would sometimes even kill themselves, trying to solve the problem. Uh, I think it's also interesting, there's this connection with <clears throat> the name Beelzebub and Lord of the Flies and all of that, and, and there's probably something to that, but basically this was another way that shepherds would protect the sheep from, uh, from risks and from attack, not from wolves, but from smaller predators trying to hurt them. Um, and sometimes I think there's a lesson in the sheep in trying to solve the problem themselves, sometimes killing themselves. Uh, that's informative for me anyways. Um, the, the second reason they would oftentimes oil, and this would be particularly for the rams, uh, the ones with horns, the males that would get uh, feisty and want to fight uh, over the females, when they would oil their horns and their heads, part of the idea was, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen a, a sheep charge and bash into another sheep, but it's like, it, it looks like a train collision, man. They, they can really hurt each other. And part of the idea was that oil would help them kind of glance off of each other and not hurt each other so much. Uh, and so uh, at the end of the service, I have a, a large bottle of Crisco. If uh, any of you would like your head oiled, so you stop running your heads into each other and uh, causing harm, I'd be happy to do that for you. <clears throat> Put some canola oil on you. So that's... There's, there's potentially multiple facets to what is being said there, but all of it is helpful and applicable, uh, I think, clearly. So, verse 6, Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. Friends, do you need that? Do you want that? And the last question is, do you have that? And to the degree that you don't, the good news is, if you know you need it and you want it, the last step is, is a short step of faith and trusting God that what his promise, the promise he has made, he will keep. And if you will submit to him as your shepherd, if you will not just submit to him as your shepherd, but delight in him, friends, that's so important, that this is not just a duty of submission, but that you delight in, in the great shepherd being your shepherd, your shepherd. The goodness, loving kindness, mercy, some of your translations will say, mercy will follow you all the days of your life and you'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And I would just like 
to quickly point out, dwelling in the house of the Lord forever is not only an eternal promise, though it is an eternal promise, and it's an incredible one, but forever includes today. And part of what it means to dwell in the house of the Lord today, I think I said this last week, is, is not gathering in a building like this that was built for the purpose of the church gathering, dwelling in the house of the Lord now. What is the house of the Lord now? It used to be a tent in the wilderness called the tabernacle, right? Then, then there was a temple that Solomon built, and then what happened? In various ways, God made sure nobody was confused that the temple was the house of God anymore. The final stroke being in 70 AD, he let it be destroyed completely by the Romans so that nobody, nobody was going to be able to point and say, that's the house of God, that's where God lives. Why? Because the plan all along was not for God to just be with us, but to live in us. This is why Jesus said, it is better for me to go so I can send the helper, so that we can fulfill the, the, the purpose that was always in God's mind, that he would be with, yes, but also in his people, that we could be the New Testament house of God. Peter talks about living stones, each of us, fitted together. And so right now what it means to be in the house of the Lord and all that that this is, this is why, friends, not because I'm a pastor, not because uh, there's some kind of selfish gain involved. This is why I, I, I can't stand aside and let people say things like, oh, well, I like Jesus or I'm spiritual, but I don't, I'm not, you know, I don't like churches or the church. Or, well, okay, here's the thing, though. Uh, the, the house of God on this side of eternity is a bunch of living stones. It's the people of God. And if, if you're not fitted together with them, accomplishing your purpose in that building, and that's the other thing, right? It's, it's not just about what you might be missing. It's about the fact that the, the building has a place for you. This is a spiritual, I'm not talking about this building, right? This building fall down tomorrow. I don't, I mean, that'd be a bummer, but whatever. <laughs> like that doesn't mean anything as far as the church goes. You understand? This building can blow up. Please not Lord. That'd be cool. But whatever, like at the end of the day, we're going to be fine. The church, the church is not harmed at all if that happens. We are the house of God. We can dwell in the house of the Lord now, and we will dwell in Mount Zion forever. Hallelujah. Friends, I, I, I need this, and I want this. And I want us all to increasingly, by God's grace, have all of the beauty promised. What it means to have the perfect shepherd. That's my prayer for us. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. God, thank you for Psalm 23. Uh, Lord, it is perhaps more apparent than ever to me why this psalm has reached the level of fame that it has. Uh, it is so clearly to me messianic in nature, first of all, pointing to the chief shepherd and how he would love and guide and lead and protect his people. Uh, but Lord, the, the depth of truth, I know we could easily spend many, many more hours digging into the intricacies of all that you're really saying here, all that you're promising here, all that you're inviting us to here. Thank you that we can say the Lord is my shepherd. I thank you that you haven't held us out at some sterile distance, but you've invited us in and 
you have committed yourself to the work of a good shepherd over us. Lord, please forgive us for all the times we are rebellious sheep. Uh, we oftentimes think we know a better way, a better path, uh, a better place to eat grass, a better place to drink water. Um, we oftentimes are not aware of just how incredibly dependent we are on you. And I thank you, Lord, that even in your mercy, you, you will pull out the rod and you will tap us on the side and you will bring us back into the flock. Um, your correction is, is a great mercy to us. Your love for us is literally impossible to describe. Your care for us is so complete. You've thought of everything. Please help us. Help us be a people that can lay down in green pastures when you say so. Help us to rest fully and completely in the peace that you alone provide. You are so good. You are so worthy of our trust. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.